Um, okay, so what's the next issue then? Then he goes through Samaria, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Okay, we did, have, did we go back and look at that in Genesis? Yeah, and it's simply the shoulder, right, or the slope of the hill, which was given um, to Joseph. Okay, and it's in Samaria. And so that's the next issue you have to deal with. Who are the Samaritans? Okay, if we don't understand the background of the story, we've got to know who the Samaritans are. So who are they? The people that were occupied by the uh, Babylonians, and they were removed from their land and sent over to Israel. Okay, close. But what's the, what's the background? First of all, before any of that, that kind of thing takes place, what happens? How does how does Samaritans become the Samaritans? There were two kings they married. Okay, there was a division in the kingdom, right? A northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Right. There was a there was a break, a schism. Remember the son of Solomon, whose name was Jeroboam. Rehoboam, right? And the other guy, Jeroboam, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the bad guy. Okay. And so there's a, a, a break between the kingdom. And the north breaks from the south, and the south becomes, or it's just simply the tribe of Judah, okay? And what other tribe? And Benjamin. Okay, but Benjamin's basically swallowed up by Judah by this point, okay? So the southern kingdom is just called Judah, which is where we get what name? Jew. The Jews, okay? And in the north, uh, becomes called, well, what? Before it's called Samaria, what's it called? Israel. Israel. Yeah, Israel. So that's important because otherwise we get confused in the Old Testament for reading, okay, that Israel, it, when they we're talking from the standpoint of the prophets, Israel is a kingdom in the north that is in schism or is broken from the, from the throne in Judah and Jerusalem, okay, they're no longer obedient to the king, okay, and Israel's capital, capital is what? Now, Israel's capital in the north. Okay, look at 1 Kings. Look at 1 Kings. Turn to 1 Kings. Where do I know? Turn to 1 Kings. Chapter 16. Yeah? Jennifer! How are you doing? Which verse of Chapter 16, verse... Um, well, verse 21, we could look at real quick. Then the people of Israel, see chapter 16, verse 21, then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Now, that's this is a little, kind of a little civil war break within this northern tribe, or this northern kingdom, I mean. Okay? The people of Israel, the people in the north, broke into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah. Okay, now, notice, it, that's always, in 1 Kings, remember, it's always talking like that. The king in Israel is told, is told when he becomes king, or begins to reign, by what year the king in the south is being is reigning, and vice versa. Okay? So you get that reference to the king of Judah. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. So, in other words, in the 31st year of Asa, king in the south, Omri began to reign in the north. 
and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in, in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city which he built, Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Okay? So Samaria ends up becoming the throne city in the north. Okay? And over time, that throne city, the name of the throne city, becomes the name for the whole northern kingdom. Okay? Or oftentimes, it's the whole northern kingdom referred to as Samaria. Okay? Um, now, what happened? He's mentioned... What happened to them, the Samaritans, this northern kingdom? What happened to them over time? They're conquered. By who? The Assyrians. Yeah, the Assyrians. You'd said Babylonians. But remember, the Assyrians are the ones that come in first. Assyria rises to power uh, around 800 B.C. and then comes down and in 721, I believe, conquers the northern kingdom. And when the Assyrians conquer, what do they do? Displaced people out the other people in. Yeah, exactly. Turn to 2 Kings. Chapter 17. Yeah, the Assyrians weren't stupid, right? They, if they wanted to control a people, they didn't want to leave them in their own land where they could have they could rise up. Instead, they took them out of their land and replaced them with other people. Okay, chapter 17, verse uh Verse 24. Sheila, you want to read that for us? You can, you can kind of skip those names. Um, and the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Susa, Abba, Hamath, and Zebarja, and whatever, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed them. So the king of Syria was told, The nations which have carried away a place in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land, and therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom he carried away thence, and let him go and dwell there, and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they dwelt. Okay, so you get this uh, a polytheism which develops, right? They worship the gods of these, of these people that were brought in, but also the god of the land. Okay? Um, Carson says this about Samaritans. Samaria had no separate political existence in Jesus' day. It was united with Judea under the Roman procurator. Nevertheless, for both Jews and Samaritans, the area was defined by both history and religion. King Ori named the new capital the northern kingdom Samaria, which name was then transferred to the district and sometimes to the entire northern kingdom. After the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722-721 BC, they deported all the Israelites of substance instead of the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. After the exile, Jews returned to their homeland 
the remains of the Southern Kingdom viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. About 400 BC, the Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, and which is the sh they're under the shadow. This conversation with Jesus, the Samaritans having with Jesus, the Samaritan woman is having with Jesus, is under the shadow of Mount Gerizim. Okay. Now, about 400 BC, the Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. Toward the end of the second century BC, this was destroyed by John Hyrcanus, the Asmonean ruler of Judea. This combination of events fueled religious and theological animosities. Certainly, by the first century, the Samaritans had developed their own religious heritage based on the Pentateuch. They did not accept the other books of the Hebrew Bible as canonical, continuing to focus their worship not on Jerusalem and its temple, but on Mount Gerizim. A small number of Samaritans survives to this day. Okay, so a um, couple things you got to know. First of all, the place where this conversation is going on is within the shadow of their temple where they worship these gods. Okay, um, and second of all, I had a second point. Oh, that they only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, the writings of Moses. Why would they reject the prophets? Do you think? They were talking about Jerusalem more? Okay. Well, they had all these false gods that they were worshiping. Okay. So clearly the prophets are going to tell them to return to the, to the one true God. Yeah, they don't want to hear that. The prophets railed against the norm. Okay. Uh, so it's, um, it would have been fitting for them to be like, okay, you guys forget you guys. We don't want anything to do with you because you reject us. Okay. So they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, go back to John. How's it going, Carrie? All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. Sheila, go ahead. Read okay. verse 1 through... Uh, I'll tell you what, why don't we read through verse 15, and then we'll come back and take it apart. Now when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sechar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Okay, now you guys are at this point have the tools to, to take this text apart. Okay, so I'm going to do my best to shut my mouth and let you do it. Okay, first of all, we, well, we, we mentioned it last time right at the end. Okay, and that is the whole scene where it's taking place and what's taking place. Okay, in verse 6, where is it taking place? Yeah, Jacob's well. And when is it taking place? At noon. Okay? And those two facts, and plus we get this, this, this points us to Jacob, okay? And we've got a man there in the person of Jesus who has just been identified in John as the bridegroom, right? A few verses before this text, okay? And suddenly there's a woman there. So we've got all these ingredients going into it. Okay, and and what back what Old Testament background do we need then that helps us? The well. The well. What what about the well? What happened at wells? What happened at wells? Should we go through the text? Well, we're not going to go to them because it would take us forever, right? But I point I gave you the, the the chapters and verses last time. You guys weren't here. Finding bride. Well, yeah. The first example you gave was Abraham sending his servant. Yeah. Right, go ahead. And he finds Rebecca there, and the sign he asks for is to whichever woman he says, give me a drink, if she gives it to him and then feeds his camels, okay, or waters so, the camels. Right. And then the other one is Moses. And uh-huh. he, well, not just the other one, there's three times, right? Yeah, so number okay. two is Moses. Okay. Is that the one in Exodus? And he rescues somebody's daughters. Okay. Okay. And also, this is at a well, and then yeah. there's one of them there. Okay. And then the third one is... Is our main man. The main man, Jacob. Jacob. Finding Rachel. Right. Because she comes to water her flock. At what time? The sixth hour. Yeah. Dude. So there's this whole, this whole Old Testament background that when there's a well, and a guy shows up, and a woman shows up, they get married. Okay? So all the time when there's a well in the Old Testament, people get married around it. Okay? So there's this whole marital background going on. Now, why is that important for us? Why is that important in the background of what's going on in John, in the background of the Samaritans, in the background of the Jews, and all of that? Well, for here, I mean, it's going to be important because if Christ has just been identified as the bridegroom, mm-hmm. then you can expect that there's some sort of marriage. All right, they're going to be stupid. All right. Are you telling me Jesus is getting married? No, but it's so Well, hold on, let somebody else answer. <laughs> Are you telling me Jesus is getting married? He's the bridegroom. Why is he a bridegroom? I mean, you guys are weird. You know, I mean, that just sounds weird. Jesus didn't get married. He's speaking to all you men. What's that? But you know he's a celibate priest? Yeah. All right, what's that? He's addressing all of you men. Okay, give me more. All of us are our rights. Okay. Yeah. And the choice in the church is the bride? Alright, that's all good. Those are all good ingredients. Now let me just kind of put that in intelligible order for you guys. That in the Old Testament, oftentimes Israel is spoken of Israel and you know, before the system here. Um, is spoken of as the bride of God. Why? 
Yeah, and what happens in marriage? Union. Yeah, covenant union. Even back in Genesis, we've seen that, right? That desire of God to share his life with his people. So when the Savior comes to save mankind, what's he going to accomplish? The covenant union, which was supposed to happen in the beginning. Okay? God wants us to be united to him. And so when Jesus comes, we, saw this, we see all this marital imagery coming out. Okay, we see John repeating that seven days of creation was the, the day of covenant where there's a marriage feast at Cana. Okay? And again, here he comes. And we can see even that imagery in Nicodemus as he's being called to Christ. Okay? But here, it's, it's a lot of the imagery comes out even stronger. Okay? So we're at a well. We're at noon. John's giving us this information to help us out, to help us interpret the text. Okay? Um, all right. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, we need one other thing I forgot to tell you. And that is, in every story in John, pretty much, what, are, what thing do we have to be aware of? What reality that John's always using? What's that? Yeah, two levels of, of, um, of interpretation or understanding. Okay, the level of the flesh and the level of the spirit, or the level of the law and the level of, of creation, or whatever it's grace and the, and the Old Testament. Okay, all that. We yeah, have grace and nature, all of those things. Okay, there's two levels. And and oftentimes, people do what? And they're just hearing Christ in the story. They just hear it on the natural level. Yeah, so for example, Nicodemus, our Lord says, you must be born on oath then, which can be interpreted as being born from above or being born again, and he understands it as being born again on the natural level. Similarly here, the word for well used in uh, verse 6, Jacob's well was there, okay, and, and sat down beside a well. The word in Greek is hege or pege, okay, which can be translated as what? What? Well. <laughs> No, it actually there's a, a deeper connotation than just well. Can we translate it as um, in, it's a type of well. There's different words for well, okay, that can be used. But this particular, yeah, bingo, right there, you got both of them, okay? It can be, well, I shouldn't say you got both of them. Another word, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, free or something like that is a word for sister, okay? Which is simply a stagnant well that goes down and, and water kind of collects into it, okay? But there's another word for well in the Old Testament, okay, or in, uh, in Greek, that can be translated in two ways, okay? And it's this word, page, okay? And it can be translated as running, okay? In other words, a well with fresh water coming into it, okay, or living, which actually is really the same kind of thing, isn't it? You could say both. It's a living well or a running well. It's the same kind of thing, okay, but living could also be... Is this an adjective describing well, or is it actually a living well, running well? Is it one word, or is it... It's one word. It's part of the definition you say. Yeah. So it's a noun, not an adjective. That's what I was wondering. 
Yeah, I guess. If I knew Greek better, I'd be able to answer you better. But, you know, that's what I know. It's about the level of the knowledge I'm at. Peter, you know a little Greek, don't you? Yeah, it's a noun. Yeah, okay, it's a, yeah, it's a noun. And it's, it's, a well. it's a type of well. Yeah. Right. So, are you saying that in this chapter alone, they use two different Greek words to... Actually, they do use two different Greek words. And in this particular instance, in this particular verse, okay, this idea of running or life-giving or living well is used to describe the well. And in fact, we know this well to this day where it's at. You can go there and drink from the well. Okay? And the well is both a cistern, okay, and a living well. And the reason they say it's both is because the the well is extremely deep, and the fresh water that comes into it comes into it way, way, way down at the very, very bottom. Okay? It's important for us in reading the text. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Life-giving water. Okay? Now, there's a couple of interesting things we need to look at in the Old Testament. Okay, turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Zechariah. 
Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, now when we are here on that day from a prophet, what day is it? The last day. Of salvation. The day of salvation, or the day of the Messiah. The day when all things will be restored. Okay? On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David, and inhabitants for Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and, and uncleanliness. Okay, and verse 8 kind of repeats that. Chapter 13, verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Okay, what, what other reference in the Old Testament does that remind you of? The waters are going to be flowing out of Jerusalem. You know what I'm talking about? What, what, did you just tell me the story. Daniel? No. This is the last one. Turn to Ezekiel chapter uh, 47. This is Ezekiel's vision of the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, is this when he walks out and the water gets higher and higher? Mm -hmm. Chapter 47. Go ahead, Sheila. Okay, I haven't found it. Oh, okay, that's okay. Sorry. Okay. Mary, are you there? Yeah, what verse? Uh, chapter 47, verse 1. Okay. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There water was flowing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, to the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east, and the water was coming out on the south side. Going on eastward with a cord in his hand, the man measured 1,000 cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured 1,000 and led me through the water. It was knee deep. Again, he measured 1,000 and led me through the water, and it was up to the waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water had risen. Okay, so in Ezekiel, this water is, this life-giving water is flowing forth from the temple, okay? And we, as we saw earlier, that God is identified as the source of living water, okay? There's two images that we keep in mind, okay? Did we identify that, or where? In Was it in Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 2. Oh, I, okay. Remember? I it says, it. They have, they, yeah, my yeah, people yeah. rejected me, their source of living water. Okay? So it appears as though Christ is pulling up this, this Old Testament images for us. Okay? Making almost explicit reference to Jeremiah as the source of living water. Okay? And also, all of these things in the prophets, and those are just a couple samples of this life-giving water which flows out of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel flows out of the temple itself, which would make sense because Jerusalem is a, is a, say, a macrocosm of the temple. Or the temple is a microcosm of what Jerusalem should be. Okay? And so, there's all these images in the prophets. Okay? So turn back to John now. I'm going somewhere with this, don't worry. Chapter 10, or verse, sorry, chapter 4, verse 10. John 4, 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, 
and he would have given you living water. Okay, if you knew the gift of God, what's that call up for you? What's that bring up for you? Grace upon grace. Good. Where is that? In the prologue. All right. Remember, I told you, you got to know the prologue. Okay? Chapter 1, verse 14. 14. No, no, no. no. 15. 16. Uh, 16. Verse 16. Go ahead. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. A grace upon a grace, right? Or a gift upon a gift. Okay? And keep reading verse 17 because it tells you about that gift. For the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Okay. So what is this gift upon a gift? It's something that builds upon the law. So if the law was the first gift, then grace is that which builds upon the law. Okay. So what's the first gift? The law. The law. Before the Jews, the gift of God was the law. Okay, which properly speaking, in its smallest form, if you will, was simply the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay? But in fact, the whole gift of God was the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? And so Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked oh, me. The now, to include and plus the stuff that the Samaritans reject, is that what you're saying? Yes! Okay, the, the Samaritans only accept what? The Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament. However, look at the references that we just looked at about life-giving water flowing forth from Jerusalem, flowing forth from the temple and coming from God himself in that day, in the Messianic day. If you knew the gift of God, implying what? She doesn't know the gift of God. And in fact, she struggles to understand what he's talking about. Why? She doesn't know any of the prophets. And the prophets are all the ones that make these references to this life-giving water which will flow forth from the temple on the day of salvation. Let's push a little bit further here. Okay? This whole text is being given to us in the context of what event that happened in John. What a great event happened in John that now all of this is flowing from. Can I ask a question? Yes. The Samaritans only accept the first five books. Yes. But the other group of people that accept the broader series of texts are called the what? The Jews. The Jews of the day. Yeah. The Israelites. Yeah. And we would just refer to them as Israel or the Jews. I mean, at this point. So they accept the totality and the balance of the Old Testament right. to that point. Right. Including the Bible. That's right. Yeah. But I'm saying even those five books are for them are, are in a sense even more elevated. They're written by Moses. They are the Torah. They are the, the foundation or core of the whole of the revelation. But they're not all of it. So even back right. in the day of this writing, the same thing was happening between the Samaritans and the Jews that's happening today between the Protestants and the Catholics. In some sense, yes. More or less. In some sense, yes. Yeah. That's a good insight. Okay. Although I wouldn't make the Protestants out to be Samaritans because the Samaritans were polytheists. So. That's me. We'll be gentle. Only because you're here. The Samaritans were which? They were polytheists. Polytheists. Yes, you came in a little late. Yeah, you missed that part. All right. Um, all right, so where were we? What did I ask you a question? What was it? Everything flows out of which event? The creation. No, no, no. In John, what event yeah, is it? Exactly. The creation. 
took place that's bringing upon him, uh, this whole thing. First of all, Nicodemus comes down to Jesus and says, we've seen what you've done. And then right at the beginning of the story, uh, Jesus is fleeing. Well, just after. I mean, yes, in some sense, you guys are both right. But Jesus is fleeing from Judea to avoid the Pharisees because of what? Is cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of the temple becomes this great sign in John, which is which happens, which takes place that we have all this reaction from. And what happened in the cleansing of the temple? Who did Jesus, what did Jesus identify himself as? The temple itself. Yeah. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Okay? Now I want to connect one quickly to Nicodemus. One point in Nicodemus is important. And that is a difficult text of Wait, Jesus. Wait, so you know, I missed something. How, what's the connection between the, what's happening in the temple and then chapter 4? Oh, we're going to get there. We need to hold on. What? Hold this all together. I thought you were going to hold on. No, because I went to chapter 2 and then we went to chapter 3 and now we went to chapter 4. Hold it together. Hold on. It's all going to come together here. Because <laughs> okay. there's, look, we're reading this over weeks and weeks and weeks and it gets confused, okay? Please. So look. So Jesus identifies himself as the temple, which is the central point of worship for the Jews. Okay? And in fact, our Lord, in his conversation with Nicodemus, says what? Just as the serpent in the desert was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who look upon him and believe will be saved. Okay? Jesus is going to become for us the central place of worship because he is the glory of God. As we saw in verse 14 of chapter 1, right? Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God and it was that glory of God which was the revelation of the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. Are you guys with me? Kind of? Mary Ann, you're lost. Come back to chapter chapter uh, four with the Samaritan woman. Okay. Wait, can we just rehash everything you just said, though? No. Okay. We can come back to it. Chapter four, verse forty-nine. No. Yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was looking at that. Chapter four, verse ten. Jesus. I'm just trying to figure out what is it. In hold on, hold on. <laughs> chapter verse ten. Jesus answered her, "If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me, asked him, and he would have given you living water.' What do you think Jesus means there? Do you think he would have given her running water from the well? Okay. But how is she going to understand him? My dear readers of the Nicodemus story. She's going to." And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where are you going to get this running water or living water? In order for Jesus to draw from this well and to get living water or running water, he's got to get a container to go way, way, way down to the bottom. And my dear friends, he's empty-handed. And she's going, <laughs> How are you? You got nothing to draw with. <laughs> Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, his sons and his cattle? 
What's the answer to that question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you guys see it's greater. And not only that, again, she misunderstands the living water. She's understanding them on that natural level. Christ is talking on a supernatural level. That life-giving water, that life that he's going to bestow upon her. Okay, yeah. So if she was a believer, and she did ask him for the living water, mm -hmm. what would he have? And we're about to find out. Because she, she's about to get it. Alright, he's about to give it to her. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water. You notice the parallel between the Nicodemus story and this and the story. Because Jesus says, comes and says to Nicodemus, You might be born again. And she says, or he says, How can I, how can I be born again from my mother's womb? Right? And then what does Jesus does he let up? No, he explains it again. And so exactly the same format. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But who, Nicodemus, whoever's born of flesh is flesh. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw again. So she's still, like, she's still thinking. He's talking about this living water at the bottom of the well or whatever she's going to get, but she's not understanding him on a supernatural level. Okay? She's not ascended with him to the Father, if you will. Okay? You guys with me? Yes? Okay. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Let's go ahead and read verse 16 through 26, and we'll go ahead and, and rip that apart, okay? So, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Okay. One of the Hebrew words for husband, common Hebrew word for husband, especially used in the Old Testament, is Baal. Okay, you've heard that word before. Yeah. Not always in reference to husband, but most of the time in reference to what? A god. A bad god, right? And it can be translated as Lord or husband. Okay, again, understanding the text on two levels. Now, he says, what does he say to her? In verse, what, 16? Jesus said to her, go call your, your husband or your Baal, your Lord, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. I have no Lord. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five Baals, or five husbands, or five lords. And he whom you now have is not your husband, or your Baal, or your Lord. Okay, now, go back to 2 Kings. 
even right. further, is it just the supernatural level that's going on? I mean, is John just writing, speaking of the Samaritans and their and their lords or their gods? Probably not. Probably with this woman, there's actually is a natural connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? She becomes an icon or an image of the whole of the Samaritan people. Okay, so it can be understood on two levels. Okay, we got, we keep going after that. I think it's going to become even more apparent. The Ignatius Commentary says, The woman's personal life parallels the historic experience of the Samaritan people. According to 2 Kings, the five foreign tribes who intermarried with the northern Israelite, Israelites introduced five male deities into their religion. These idols were individually addressed as Baal, a Hebrew word meaning lord or husband. The prophets denounced Israel for serving these gods, calling such worship infidelity to its true covenant spouse, Yahweh. Hope was kept alive, however, that God would show mercy to these Israelites and become their everlasting husband in the bonds of a new covenant. This day has dawned in the ministry of Jesus, the divine bridegroom, who has come to save the Samaritans from a lifetime of struggles with five pagan husbands. Okay? Let's go one verse further. Okay? Let's, well, start at verse 16. We'll go verse Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband, is not your Lord. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So notice where she goes. The text in the English is very difficult to understand. In our translation, is very difficult to understand. The five husbands, five lords, which what's Jesus talking about? How does she understand him? But what's her reaction? He points out five lords that she's had, and what's her response? You're a prophet. You're a prophet, and? And then she starts talking about where they're supposed to worship. Exactly. Immediately she responds by talking about the places of worship. So she's clearly starting to understand Christ on what level? The more supernatural. On a little more of a supernatural level. Okay? So there's this, this play going on, but by reading the text carefully, you can see that she, on what, how she's reading Christ's question about the five husbands or five lords. Okay? Yeah? Do you really think she had five, five husbands on a natural level? Or, or did, did, did she get it that he was talking about? I, I kind of would tend to think that uh, because of her response, that she totally understood what he was talking about. But, but I, it's, that's just, I have no idea. Yeah. The interpretation I read from that commentary is the most common word. Her life parallels that of the Samaritan people. Okay? But clearly, she's understanding Christ on this level of the worship of God. Okay? All right. So, so it isn't five previous living lovers at all. It's reference to the five polytheistic right. gods. I say more importantly, it's that. That's the that's really the more the, the point of the text. It can be both without. It could be both. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer, you agree with that? All right. Verse 21. Jennifer, go ahead. Verse verse, uh, 20. 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that Jerusalem is the place where men...
They have rightly said all that they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded, command him. And whoever will not give heed to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose man the Lord your God. Okay, and so on. Okay, okay, I'm gonna come. Okay, so there's this prophecy of a prophet who will come to fulfill the words of Moses, a prophet like Moses who they will accept. Okay? And there's a way to test them. This text is going to become very important in the next couple of chapters. Okay? And the Samaritan woman has seen in Christ the fulfillment of this prophecy. There's only one prophet she would accept, and it's that prophet prophesied by Moses. Okay? So again, she comes to a fullness of, of belief, or a fuller belief. St. Ephraim the Syrian says, If you are a king, why are you asking water from me? It was not thus that he had first revealed himself to her, but rather first as a Jew, and then as a prophet, and after that as the Messiah. From degree to degree he led her and placed her on the highest degree. She first saw him as someone thirsting, and then as a Jew, as a Jew, and then as a prophet, and after that as God. As someone thirsting, she per she persuaded him. As a Jew, she recoiled from him. As a learned one, she interrogated him. As a prophet, she was reprimanded. And as the Messiah, she worshipped him. Okay, go back to John, and we'll just finish. Just read the last bit there and call it good. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay. Again, going back to that, that idea of Christ and a source of living water. That Jesus is the place where the true worship of God will take place. It is no longer in Jerusalem, in the temple, where man will worship God. It is no longer on Mount Gerizim, where man will worship God. It, man will worship God where? In Christ. In Christ. And that's why in chapter 2, you can go, you can go back and see there where he identifies himself as a temple. Exactly. Exactly. And this is all connected with that. In verse 27, Thus then his disciples came, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But none said, What do you wish, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the city and said, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
and they went out to the city and were coming to him. So she has a full-blown conversion. Notice, she leaves her water jar, her source of natural water, right? Because she has drunk from the living water, who is Christ himself. And now, springing up within her is a fountain of living water. She goes out into the world and shares Christ with them. Meanwhile, the disciples besought him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have no food to eat. Of what I have to do you which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him food? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. So that, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the same holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that, you, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So, this, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. How do you understand that? Is that good or bad? Chapter 1, verse 12. Yeah, to believe in the word of Christ. They have received him, not on the level of signs or on miracles, but they have believed and entrusted themselves to him. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of your word that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Okay? Let's conclude with that. We're going to come back next time and um, and read real quickly over chapter... Oh, my. We were supposed to get through chapter 5 today. Anyway, let's just stay ahead a little bit. Let's conclude. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. St. John the Evangelist. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.